Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs here at Dirk Towers in Adlington, Chorley, in the northwest of England. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. Here on my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. Here on my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a little tap. Ah, yes. This time, the Eternal Champion is looking grim and perilous in Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. I'm also surrounded by the trappings of the latest Grognard file under discussion. Soft shoes, a tinderbox, a pewter tankard and a small vicious dog. Yes, woof ruff, get down! Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay WHFRP or WFRP Warhammer all in capitals or with a capital W and a H it's a minefield I think I'll settle for Woofrup first published in 1986 by Games Workshop it's been revived in a brand new edition by Cubicle 7 like RuneQuest which we covered a few episodes ago this has got a new edition which is sympathetic to the old but it's very new Speaking of RuneQuest, as we often are, since the last GrogPod, there's been the sad news of Greg Stafford's passing. The founder of Chaosium, discoverer of Glorantha, and the inventive genius behind Pendragon, Prince Valiant, Ghostbusters, and many other innovative gaming ideas. He once said, Role-playing is a way for humans to interact with our deep, hidden mythological selves. They are a way to feed our souls. I'd like to dedicate this podcast to his memory. Not just this episode, but the entire endeavour. Without him sparking my imagination back in 1981, none of this would exist. I never met him, so he was always a mythic figure, and he'll continue to be so. His spirit will continue in the games I play, the stories I create with my friends, and within this podcast. Thanks, Greg. This is at least a two-part episode on the UK's most celebrated role-playing creation. I'm really pleased that Graeme Davis has entered the room of role-playing rambling after finding a break in his extremely busy schedule to join us. In this part, he's opening the box on Woofruff, talking about the early days when it was first published by Gaines Workshop, and his involvement in the revival. Next time, he takes us on a whistle-stop tour of his prolific career. He was a regular contributor to the golden age of White Dwarf, and our very good friend from Twitter, at Daily Dwarf, has written an overview of Woofruff that appeared in the magazine. Articles in this first part, and scenarios in the second. And great news for all our listeners. We've been working in partnership with the ever-excellent What Would the Smart Party Do podcast. The Amateur Adventurers never actually played Woofruff back in the day, 
I know, I know. We've been playing the fourth edition with Gaz from the Smart Party podcast as the Games Master, which has been a great grounding in the delights of lips and snout sausage and general putrance of the old world. Our resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe, is standing aside in this episode and handing his judicial wig to Gaz's co-host, Baz from the Smart Party, to help us get deep and dirty into the first edition rules. I'll be back at the end to give you the latest about the grogzine and uh, to say goodbye. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box. Welcome to Open Box, the section of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards and how our gaming experiences of the past have informed the present. This time I'll be opening the box on Warhammer with one of the designers who is most synonymous with its development. Prolific contributor to gaming magazines, editor, consultant to the gaming video industry and anthologist Graham Davis. Hello, Graham. Hi. Now, uh, speaking to you, now you're in uh, Colorado. So how long have you been in Colorado? Um, well, I, I've been in the States off and on, mostly on, uh, since I left Games Workshop in 1990. I, I first moved to Denver then, and I've been back and forth a couple of times to Britain and to... Uh, other parts of the US, but yep, this is uh, this is where I spent most of my time in Colorado. And um, so yes, I, I grew up in the uh, in the home counties as a Southern softy, and then uh, rather shockingly went to uh, to Durham for uh, for college. Spent most of my time in the Northeast after that before until I moved to uh, to Nottingham for Games Workshop. We, our traditional opening uh, question, uh, Graham, is. Uh, to tell us about your first game, uh, first role-playing game that you played, uh, what you played and uh, who you played with. It was about 1977. I'd finished school, hadn't started university because my A-levels were pretty terrible. I was working in a bank in London. To stay sane, I uh, joined a local amateur dramatics group. I'd done a few school plays and uh, quite enjoyed being on the stage. In the drama club, were several uh, younger guys who, who worked at ICL and had picked up Dungeons and Dragons in college. Uh, this would be the old white box edition, the very first one. They started talking about this game they were playing that was sort of a bit like a miniatures war game and also a bit like improvised theatre. I just couldn't reconcile these two concepts in my mind. So purely to find out what was going on, I joined one of their games. My first game, uh, both my characters were thieves and both of them were killed by a minotaur, but I was absolutely hooked. The idea of mythological monsters, um, I'd, I'd grown up watching things like the Ray Harryhausen, and Jason and the Argonauts and, uh, and monsters were a big obsession of mine. Yep, I was hooked from then on after. Within about a month, I was designing my own dungeons. I played with that group three years um, until I went to college. I find it really interesting um, with guests that we've had on. That there seems to be two routes into the hobby. Um, one seems to be a war game in a military interest, and the other mm. seems to be amateur dramatics and interesting drama. It seems to be that that's where the uh, two things coalesce, isn't it? It is. I've not heard anybody else make that comment, but that's certainly uh, how it happened for me. Also, of course, it uh, it tickled my uh, sort of mythology geek nerve in the you know, now there was a set of rules and a set of stats and I could tell whether a, a harpy from Greek myth was uh, equal to a troll from Norse myth or, or whatever. 
uh, and that concept intrigued me as well. Do you think that your interest in drama informed what you would go on to do, your writing, or was it more the uh, love of history? Well, they each had their part. I think in in terms of uh, what I went on to do for uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and and some of my later AD&D writing as as that developed, became more story-driven and character-driven, included little homages to writers I'd encountered like Ben Johnson and even Charles Dickens. So at what point did um, your playing turn into uh, writing? So when, when did you make that leap? When I started getting uh, White Dwarf magazine in the uh, in the late seventies, they uh, let me see now. When would that have been? It would have been about nineteen eighty. Um, Jamie Thompson was the editor then, and it was bi-monthly back then. And there was uh, always someone in the letters column saying, "When are you going to go monthly? When are you going to go monthly?" And uh, Jamie wrote a, a, a reply that said, "Well, when we get enough material to do it." And so uh, this was a red rag to a bull as far as I was concerned. And from then on, I sent him, I think, two or three articles a month uh, until in 1982, he, he finally relented and printed one. Can you remember which one was that? I, I can indeed. It, it shows that I was at college at the time. It was a little subsystem. It was in the treasure chest feature, uh, White Dwarf 32, I think it was. And it was a little subsystem for AD&D for dealing with um, drug addiction. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. He, he made the further error of sending me a small check. Onlookers reported a, a shaft of light from the heavens and the sounds of a celestial choir when I opened the envelope. And then I was uh, straight off to the college bar and, and converted it into beer with all dispatch. And from then on, I was sending articles probably once or twice a month, and I became a, a regular contributor, so much so that by uh, 1986, when uh, Games Workshop was thinking of doing a, a Warhammer role-playing game, I'd established myself as a, a fairly reliable writer, and they asked me if I was interested in coming on board. What, what I find fascinating about this um, period of gaming is that you feel a shift in the art form, and I feel that you contributed to that. I get the sense that you were pushing what was possible in um, scenario design. On this podcast, we've said in the past that uh, Ghost Jack or Kill, for example, really ambitious uh, scenario that pushed the boundaries of what was possible. Did it feel like that at the time? Oh, that, that's um, <clears throat> that's very kind of you to say. Um, it felt at the time not that I was pushing at the boundaries, but that the the boundaries were that, that I was riding the wave, if you like. You're back in um, eighty one or so when Call of Cthulhu first came out. It changed the way a lot of people thought about role playing games. You know, instead of uh, kick the door, kill the monster, take the treasure, lather, rinse, and repeat, it, it became a lot more story oriented. Call of Cthulhu, of course, um, the game remains the game in which combat is probably the least sensible option under most circumstances so you had to think and learn and research and figure out what was going on and formulate a a strategy that would actually work and and see you at the end of it alive and sane and that that had a great influence across the board particularly in british role-playing i remember the london fanzines at the time coined the term role gamer to uh, to describe people who uh, were into a more more sort of uh, story-oriented, thoughtful and uh, dramatic with a small d kind of style as opposed to what they called Irvings. Uh, they'd be called Munchkins today, which is the uh, 
the little uh, usually young players who are terribly enthusiastic and want to tell you about their character and the uh, the 14 times they've killed Orcus and taken his wand. For a while there, the the hobby seemed to be split into those two camps. Um, there, there, there was a lot of that going on. Uh, and as I say, rather than consciously pushing at the boundaries, what I was doing, and, and also, uh, you know, let's not forget Phil Gallagher and Jim Bambra, who were the main architects of the Enemy Within campaign and, uh, and contributed an awful lot to, uh, to what Warhammer Fantasy roleplay became in terms of, uh, of tone and scope. We all felt that, you know, we didn't want to do just a, a sterile monster bashing game. And uh, we took inspiration from all over the place. Yeah, so let's let's talk about um, Warhammer then, and um, that original uh, when you moved to Nottingham and started that. Uh, what was the original concept? What what were you trying to achieve as a a team of uh, writers? I suppose the most important thing uh, to know is that there were actually two teams um, working one after the other. Those who've seen the old um, Citadel journals and Citadel compendiums will know that Warhammer Fantasy Role, Warhammer Roleplay as it was called first, had been in the works for quite some time, along with Realm of Chaos and uh, various uh, Rogue Trader. These were, were names that had been banded about for probably four or five years. Warhammer Roleplay had been worked on and off in particular by uh, by Rick Priestley. And when I got to Games Workshop in uh, May of 86, he put together quite an extensive draft with a whole lot of notes from Brian Ansell and some more notes from Richard Hallowell. So this was what I was given to turn into a role-playing game. But the thing was, all three of them were wargamers and wargames designers, so they'd taken a, a very wargamey approach. Initially, the intention was that it was to be 100% compatible with Warhammer, which was then in its second edition, the uh, the Red Box edition. I don't know if you remember or if anybody listening will remember the Good Games Guide, which came out around Christmas of 85. It was a sort of a one-off um, games workshop catalogue for, for to help people buy Christmas presents for their gamer friends. And in that, there was a scenario called The Web of Eldor by Rick Priestley for Warhammer Roleplay. Actually, it was for Warhammer second edition battle rules with a few role-playing bits thrown in but that's pretty much the state of uh, of the game when it, it came to me uh it was all second edition warhammer rules and uh, th there are some artifacts in uh, in wolfrop's first edition that there just wasn't time to change like for example the skills um being one-offs you either had them or you didn't um, sort of like feats in the more recent versions of D&D, or more appropriately, like uh, unit traits in a, in a war game. So I had about three months to uh, edit this draft, put out the, uh, the Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game. Jim and Phil came on from, uh, from TSR UK. Uh, they joined about a month after I did. Together, we, uh, we worked to make it into a a role-playing game that we felt was up to the uh, the standards of the day that took on board the influences of, of Call of Cthulhu with its uh, sort of more storytelling aspect and the uh, the fashion for, for role gaming as opposed to uh, just monster bashing. It was all done in rather too much of a rush, which is why the uh, mechanics for first edition were never its strongest point. But on the other hand, working within those mechanics led us to, to emphasise story and character 
and and that seemed to be uh, what people liked most about the first edition anyway yeah it's the, it's the mood and tone isn't it and um, yeah. uh, uh, and it's enhanced by the illustrations um, you know we've recently um, started looking at it and you realize that the uh, Tony Auckland uh, illustrations are much a part of how you feel the gothic feel of it as anything else oh that's right yeah and and Tony is an incredibly prolific artist. I mean, he could do like five or six of those career or skill illustrations in a day. He, he just churned them out. Uh, we, we all had a very similar view. You know, this was back in the uh, in the Thatcher era. Um, we were a bunch of working class and uh, left-leaning middle-class kids fresh out of college, fashionably cynical, a little bit post-punk. And, and you can see all of those uh, influences going uh, going in also we wanted to make sure it was a british game because everything had come from america up till then woofer wasn't the first british role-playing game published but it was the first one by a major british company as opposed to uh, an amateur working alone we wanted to do away with the american conventions of everybody was clean everybody had perfect teeth uh, everybody had shiny chrome-plated armor, good was good and bad was bad, and near the twain shall meet. Bringing in influences from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Jabberwocky, Blackadder, slapstick elements and choices of evils and, uh, you know, morality that was not so clear. We all felt the same way about that. Yeah, and of course, um, another uh, influence must have been 2000 AD because it had that similar satirical feel that darkly satirical feel. Um, so some people may not realise that uh, the enemy within is a phrase used by Mrs Thatcher to describe the miners back in the 80s. That's I, right. Yeah. And, and it was that a deliberate choice to have that satirical element? Definitely, yeah. The, uh, the mix of horror and humour was something that was very important to us. You, you mentioned 2000 AD, and you're absolutely right. Um, at, at that time, um, Games Workshop was publishing the, the Judge Dredd role-playing game, and the various 2000 AD projects were, uh, were in the works because uh, Games Workshop had got a, a blanket licence. Uh, so Rogue Trooper board game came out. There are a couple more Judge Dredd games. City Block, I think, was one of them. I, for a while, uh, was researching and working on a, a Slain role-playing game uh, from my archaeological roots and obsession with the uh, the Irish sagas, but that, alas, never came to be. Uh, although I did get to work on the, uh, the one that was put out by Mongoose Publishing about 10 years ago. And not just 2000 AD, but more anarchic comics like Viz. And we'd all grown up uh, listening to the, the Goon Show. And there were, there were just elements coming in from all over the place. And almost all of them anarchic and irreverent and anti-heroic. Uh, and the idea was that uh, if you approach Wolfrop in the, in the way that you might approach AD&D, you were going to get severely embarrassed and probably dead. Those people who haven't... Uh, are not aware of the enemy within campaign um, just how would you pitch that to a new player it ended up being the uh, it was the first campaign for warhammer fantasy role play and ended up um defining a lot of the game's um tone and the game world particularly a, a country called the empire which is uh very similar to uh, Renaissance Germany uh, with fantasy bits uh if Renaissance Germany had been uh, designed and directed by Terry Gilliam and um, the campaign winds through that area. You start off as uh, a bunch of uh, 
ambitious kids trying to uh, set yourselves up as adventurers so that you, you don't have to shovel manure all your life. You come across various plots and chaos cults. They are the enemy within, gnawing at the roots of imperial society and plotting the downfall of not just the nation but the world. And as you go on, you get stronger and uh, explore more areas of the world. So in the first episode, there's a, a, a plot in a small market town. The second episode, you go uh, and explore the river system, which uh, roads were really bad in the Middle Ages. Oh, this is another thing. You, you mentioned theatre and wargaming. Um, archaeology seems to be a, a, a fairly uh, strong thread as well. Rick Priestley was an archaeologist. I was. A guy called Nigel Stillman, who wrote for... Uh, Games Workshop was. Graham Morris, I'm often mistaken for him, but he worked with Jim and Phil on D&D Adventures for TSR UK, also an archaeologist. Anyway, between all of us, we're getting closer to the, the, the truth of the Middle Ages rather than the Hollywood Middle Ages, uh, which generally meant more, more modern manure and uh, uh, less social mobility. Uh, yeah, so uh, medieval roads were really bad, so rivers were the, the highways of that era, and we reflected that in the Empire and in, uh, in Wolfrop and the Enemy Within. So the second episode, Death on the Reich, sees you uh, plying the rivers, following clues, maybe doing a little trading to, uh, to get enough cash to get by. And then uh, you're led to one of the empire's greatest cities where you thwart a plot to place the rulership, the leadership rulers of the whole city in the hands of chaos. Finally, you get to, uh, to avert a civil war and uh, save not just the empire, but the world. And, and I think it's that ambition and uh, epic scope that's kept it as its longevity and it you know it's one of the uh mythic campaigns it's up there with like masks of nayaflatep isn't it as a it's held up in uh, regard as one of the tent poles of uh of rpg writing it does seem to be the case i, I think it was in 1988 or so that uh, there was a french magazine called casus belly pronounced that the enemy within and masks of Nile and Hotep were, were joined first in their poll for the, the greatest role-playing campaign of both time, of all time. And ever since then, both uh, campaigns have, uh, have sort of been tied together by that. Uh, everybody seems to refer to them. And it's, uh, it's very great and very flattering, but I, I have to say that uh, the enemy within is not perfect. That's one of the reasons... Uh, which we may come to later, but it's one of the reasons why I'm very excited to be uh, working right now with Cubicle 7 to do what they're calling the director's cut of the campaign. Yeah, we will, we will return to that because that, that, that's interesting to see that revived. But it, it, just going back to this period uh, in the uh, mid-80s, it was a great flourishing of uh, RPGs from uh, Games Workshop. And in the uh, in the podcast this year, we've been covering Golden Heroes, Judge Dread, and some of the um, games that they were uh, printing under license, such as Paranoia and RuneQuest 3rd Edition. And then, of course, for us, uh, Grognards, uh, back, back in the day, it just suddenly stopped uh, and ended. Yeah. Uh, could you see that coming? And how did that feel to be in the middle of that? It all started everyone's got their own opinion about this and uh, i should stress this is just mine mm-hmm. um the way i i saw it happening was that i joined games workshop shortly after they moved to nottingham and uh, ian and steve ian livingston and steve jackson 
stepped back a little bit and they were starting, they were more involved with fighting fantasy at that point. So Brian Ansell was uh, running the company and he was a miniatures guy first and foremost. He'd founded Citadel Miniatures and before that Asgard and I forget what other companies. Miniature sales were very, very important. And I have to say, yeah, the profit margins at the time were, uh, even at the time before Games Workshop's prices became what they are today, uh, the profit margins were significant. And Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay came out within a month of Warhammer 40K. So comparisons were made in their profitability. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay just sold books, 40K sold books and miniatures, and didn't need a constant stream of support material to keep people interested. Those who have seen the first printings of uh, the first three parts of the Enemy Within campaign, the Enemy Within and Shadows Over Bogenhafen in their module format, and Death on the Reich in its box set format, um, may have seen miniatures flyers in those. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you remember the old Warhammer battle sets like Blood Bark, Bloodbath at Orcs Drift and, um, and Macdeath and those, they all came with miniatures deals. And it was standard policy. But of course, role players were never going to shell out 100, 150 quid on um, miniatures for one adventure in a campaign. And um, so I think the writing was on the wall from that point as far as role-playing games were uh, concerned at Games Workshop. Um, a number of other projects that were proposed, um, for example, my uh, slain role-playing game that I mentioned earlier, Golden Heroes wasn't really selling all that well compared to Marvel Superheroes or I think there was a DC Heroes game. Judge Dredd uh, role-playing products did great, but I don't know how well they sold in the States uh, where the character was, was less well-known. You know, witness the Sylvester Stallone movie. Uh, there obviously wasn't quite the, uh, the feel and understanding for, for the 2000 AD ethic and, and aesthetic in the States as there was in the UK. 40K and Warhammer Battle quickly became the, the two pillars of the company in terms of uh, profit and were later joined by the Lord of the Rings game. So anything that wasn't uh, part of that, uh, it became a bit of a struggle to, uh, to get support for it internally and to get resources committed to new product. Me and my friends stopped playing at about, about that time. Um, but Warhammer continued, didn't it? Because the fans uh, kept it going, the, uh, the role-playing um, through the 90s and, uh, and beyond. Yes, they did. They did, and I can't say enough about that. I mean, uh, there, to be fair to Games Workshop, various attempts were made to uh, increase the profitability of role-playing products. Um, one of the things that hurt was the establishment of TSR UK, which meant that uh, there were no more uh, licensed printings of, uh, of AD&D products for, for Games Workshop. One of the keys to their initial profits, they, they printed uh, D&D, AD&D, Traveller, RuneQuest, under license, uh, exclusive license for, for the European market. While they carried on, you know, there were new deals made for RuneQuest, for Call of Cthulhu, and for uh, Paranoia and other games, as you've said. 
they didn't really do too much. And as a last resort, Flame Publications was set up to support Woofrup, um, consisting of uh, me, Tony Ackland, and Mike Brunton. We put out a fair amount of material. Uh, we didn't have any control really over what we were to make, but we got it done. I think we were significantly cheaper than having the whole studio on a project. But uh, even so, the Two Games Workshop management, it was uh, far more attractive to, you know, do something more, add a new race to 40K or, or whatever. By about 92, I think it was, that Castle Drakenfels came out, the last Flame publication. Um, the whole thing just petered out. But fortunately, by then, we had this wonderful thing called the Internet uh, with news groups and mailing lists. And um, a Woofrup fan community sprang up around the world and um, kept on talking about the game, uh, creating fan material and, and kept the game alive without oxygen for about three years. James Wallace of Hogshead Publishing picked up the license from, from Games Workshop, and he did mostly reprints. He had plans to do a lot more original material than he did, but uh, I put together one or two things for him, and um, that lasted, I can't remember how long that lasted, maybe five or six years, but he did a lot of stuff, including getting Realm of Sorcery out after, I think, 20 years after it was first published. <laughs> and... Uh, but he never he never managed to do the uh, uh, Empire in Chaos, uh, which was his his idea to replace the uh, the final part of the Enemy Within campaign, Empire in Flames, which once again had been put out in far too much of a hurry and, uh, and really wasn't up to standard. You know, then uh, even after that died, the fans refused to let go. In the uh, I think the 2000s, uh, there was another effort made. Black Industries uh, Games Workshop partnered with Green Ronin, one of the uh, the leading uh, independent uh, role-playing game publishers of that time, to form Black Industries and do the second edition. And then we had the third edition with Fantasy Flight, and now we've got a fourth edition just out from, from Cubicle 7. The fan community just stays incredibly loyal all around the world. People find something to, to love about Wolfrub in the old world, and it's incredibly humbling, you know, to know that some nonsense that I wrote 30 odd years ago has has people um, so interested and excited and uh, and wanting to explore further. Uh, and that's the main reason I think why I've stayed with it so long. I just feel like uh, um, I owe these fans so much. And uh, so let's talk, talk about the new version. So the is the new version a greatest hits of all the previous editions? Yes and no, Minister. Um, <laughs> let me start by saying that every edition uh, has had something that people liked and something that people didn't like. Uh, and actually third edition, well, all three previous editions uh, have their fans and their detractors for various reasons. With first edition, it's the game mechanics. They were clunky. We really didn't have time to completely rewrite the game system before shipping the game in uh, in time for Christmas '86, and but people seemed willing to overlook that in, in exchange for the setting and the adventures and the characters and the, the general overall tone. When Second Edition came out, Games Workshop had just run a Warhammer battle event called Storm of Chaos, which was a huge chaos invasion that swept across the old world and, and ruined a whole lot of things and. Second edition Wolfrup was set after this, 
20 years uh, in the future from, uh, from when first edition was. A lot of people didn't like that, uh, but a lot of people agreed that the game mechanics were uh, a lot better. Uh, and then third edition um, had completely different mechanics based on a, a dice pool system using dice with uh, symbols on them rather than numbers. So, uh, you know, three skulls meant one thing and two swords meant another, and, which was okay once you got used to it, but it wasn't the most intuitive system in the world uh, compared to, say, a percentile dice system. And it was also very heavy on components, which helped the record keeping that people normally do with pencil and paper, but uh, that produced its own problems. So for a while there, we had a, a very uh, nasty series of edition wars online. And my hope is that the new fourth edition will help put that to an end. Back to the old world setting, the mechanics are based on second edition mechanics with a few extensions and enhancements here and there. And most people agree they're the, uh, the best mechanics. My fervent hope is that everybody will find something to like about it. And, uh, you know, was, uh, I said at Gen Con in a, in a, a speech I gave, you know, fight chaos, not each other. Um, <laughs> That's very good. So, and, so, you, so, so you mentioned that you're going to be reviving Enemy Within, uh, a director's yeah. cut. So what's planned with that? Is that a, a complete rewrite? Well, um, that's a good question because uh, a few years ago I, I wrote a thing called The Enemy Within for third edition. And the, the name has become such a magic name. Everybody is, uh, you know, everybody pricks up their ears when they hear it. But the third edition Enemy Within was completely new. It just used the title and the theme of, uh, you know, uh, chaos inspired corruption gnawing away at the roots of the empire. The Enemy Within Director's Cut is just what it sounds like. Um, I'm going back over the original Enemy Within campaign doing it the way that Jim and Phil and I wanted to do it all, way, all along. I've lost touch with Jim, but I've been in touch with, uh, with Phil Gallagher over the last couple of years, and we've sort of pooled our memories and, uh, in terms of what we intended to do versus what, uh, what actually happened for various commercial reasons. So I'm taking that as my guide. I've got um, you know, 30 years' worth of fan feedback in, in forums and uh, various other online venues. We know uh, pretty, pretty accurately uh, within each adventure what things worked and what didn't. And also I'm uh, including ways for the GM to make the campaign completely fresh for old Gronyard who, who played it 30 years ago or at any time in the last 30 years so that it'll be fresh and it'll have some surprises. And uh, also if any players decide to use their prior knowledge to, to get an advantage, then uh, the GM has various options to embarrass and humiliate them. You know, if they go... <laughs> If they if they go straight for the uh, the villain in the original printing, they may find out that actually the villain is somebody else, and uh, this is the one character they need to be friends with, or else everything falls apart. And is there new content planned? Um, so as well as the enemy within uh, Cubicle Seven, going to be releasing new stuff as well as uh, reviving classics. Um, yes, absolutely, uh, and the emphasis is going to be on. Uh, original new material, filling out the world and, and creating new adventures. Also smoothing over some of the uh, some of the bumps. Uh, there have been Games Workshop, as you probably know, has, is not the most careful company in the world when it comes to uh, respecting their own canon and previous products. Um, they'll, they'll happily contradict something that's been in a previous product and, and not worry about it. 
And uh, one of the things I've been talking about with Andy Law, who's the project manager and a, a, a great Warhammer fan who knows a, a heck of a lot about the world, is uh, ways to uh, to smooth over these contradictions and, uh, you know, either make them either explain them away in a, a fascinating and elegant fashion that will uh, have everybody's jaws on the floor or to just wink at the uh, at the audience and say, yeah, we know. And uh, here's a little sort of in-game joke explaining it. For example, there's a town um, in the old world called uh, Immelscheldt. Uh, and the, the L is sometimes rendered as an I, Immelscheldt. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, in some editions, so uh, I've taken in the uh, in the enemy within director's cut the uh, adventurers pass through there, and they find out actually the local style of uh, of sign writing. Uh, you have to picture an old-fashioned German sign with the the spiky script and everything, makes the characters rather I and L rather difficult to distinguish from one another, which means that uh, outsiders often um, think they see Immel Scheidt, which, of course, the last syllable is quite a rude word, even in the, in the local language. And um, the, uh, the, the local residents are extremely fed up with people misinterpreting their signs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, get, they get a, a little ribbing about, well, you know, can't you read? And, and stuff like that, which is just a little gag to, to wink at the audience and say, yeah, we know, and we're doing our best to smooth it all over or at least make it entertaining. Before I say goodbye, I've got a question from uh, my listeners who are very concerned about gnomes and what the plans are for gnomes in Warhammer. <laughs> ah, yes, gnomes. <laughs> well, you know, they're... Uh, they're irrepressible little buggers. You never know when they might pop up again. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't count them out. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, Graham. Thank you. You're welcome. White Dwarf! Woof Ruff, the articles. Fantasy, overwhelmingly the most popular setting for role-playing games. That's not so surprising given that the modern hobby started with Dungeons and & Dragons and over the years more games have been released for the fantasy genre than any other by far. Back in 1986, as well as D&D, we already had Tunnels & Trolls, RuneQuest, The Fantasy Trip, Rollmaster, Dragon Quest, Chivalry & Sorcery, to name just a few. Did we really need another fantasy RPG? Well, Games Workshop thought so. And so... Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was launched onto an unsuspecting world and it turned out to be a bit special. When the rulebook for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, Wolfruff, was released in the back end of 1986, it seemed very new and exciting to my teenage self. I think it was largely down to two things. One, it came from Games Workshop, the publisher of my beloved White Dwarf, and still at that time a big presence in the RPG industry, and two, it was British. This hadn't been cooked up in some place called Lake Geneva, wherever the hell that was, but good old Blighty. It was shiny and new and dangerous, infused with British sensibilities and cynicism. It felt like it belonged to the Brits, to the kids, to us. And when you read it, you realise that this wasn't the fantasy that you were used to. The shiny fantasy of D&D and Tolkien, of high-minded ideals and noble quests. 
Neither was it the mythic fantasy of RuneQuest. No, this was grim and dark fantasy, uh, to coin a phrase, inspired by the Thirty Years' War, by Michael Moorcock and Gilliam's Jabberwocky, fantasy that was down and dirty in the muck of the streets, fantasy with an attitude problem and dirt under its fingernails. And as a product of the 1980s, it was shot through with a vein of black humour, the only sane response to living in Thatcher's Britain. A number of choices were made by the design team that really set Woofruff apart from the herd. It was decided that Woofruff should use and develop the setting for the Warhammer fantasy battle game, namely the Old World, a kind of late medieval alt-Europe with a focus initially on the Empire, an analogue of Germany at the time. And for me, the setting was pitched just right. Basing it on historical Europe was key. It provided at least a passing level of familiarity, so it felt a bit more manageable, a world I could build on without having to deal with information overload of something like Glorantha. The Germanic names for people and places worked really well too, giving it an added verisimilitude and believability to the world. This avoided the silly random string of consonant names suffered by some fantasy settings. Places had names like Altdorf and Marenburg, and people were called Karl Franz and Morgan Bernhardt. There were no Beek Gwenders in the Empire. The shift forward in time from the traditional fantasy RPG time frame to late medieval early renaissance was an inspired move, not only introducing technology like early firearms into the game, but also giving it a more urban focus. Towns and cities came to the fore as backdrops for adventures. Societies and guilds were inextricably linked to the characters' fates. And the running theme of the enemy within a society rotting from the inside out. It was perfectly realised. Yes, this truly was a product of its time. The rules themselves felt as though they were built on the foundations of the fantasy RPGs that had gone before. Everything seemed to be designed to tie back to the setting, to provide players with an immersive, atmospheric backdrop for adventures. Gone were D&D's rather abstract classes, replaced by much more specific careers. Characters were no longer just fighters or thieves, but bounty hunters, smugglers or rat catchers. Combat was suitably deadly, even if your characters kept missing, the monsters didn't, with the memorably grisly critical hit tables to the fore. An unhealthy dose of influence from Call of Cthulhu was thrown in for good measure, as battling forces of chaos depleted characters' sanity. That hardback rulebook was a big beast, over 350 pages of grim and perilous gaming crunch. Immediately after Woofrus release, it felt like the British fantasy gaming was in safe hands, with Games Workshop seemingly fully committed to the game, and, of course, White Dwarf was a key part of that commitment. The magazine really went all in for the next couple of years, publishing a large number of features. If you were a Woofruff player or a GM, there was something for you in White Dwarf each and every month. But hadn't we seen this before with Games Workshop? 
with the Just Dread RPG and Golden Heroes before that, an initial flurry of articles and enthusiasm and sales for the new RPG were high, only for it to disappear from the pages from the magazine. Would Woofruff ultimately suffer the same fate? A number of the early articles for Woofruff in White Dwarf felt like they were originally intended for the rule book, but ended up on the cutting room floor in order to keep the book to a liftable size. In Hand of Destiny, Graham Davis gave solid advice on the use of fate points in the game, guiding players on how and when to use them, and games masters on how to embed them within the narrative taking advantage of an adverse situation for the players to put further twists in the plot. Whoops! by Ashley Denison and Graham Davis gave us fumble tables to match the hip tables in the rule book. These were written with a macabre relish and tongue-in-treek humour, with plenty of body parts going snap and crunch unintentionally. And in a fistful of musprunts, were two full pages of corrections to errors in the rule book. The Games Workshop proofreaders were presumably corrupted by the forces of chaos. Also, a note from these early Wolfrup articles was Out of the Garden in issue 86. Here, Phil Gallagher delved deep, looking at gnomes, a well-balanced race with a chip on both shoulders. Gnome attitudes and cultures, using them as player characters and even their god, Ringill were examined in some detail. A popular fantasy race with some players, it was good to see them given an extended coverage. Phil Gallagher couldn't help himself though. Whenever the subject of gnomes comes up, people can't help indulging in puns, and Phil was no exception. For example, the lower master, who ensured that the race's rituals were followed with clockwork precision, was known as, yes, you've guessed it, the metronome. As I said above, the career system for PCs played a big part in Woofruff, and this was carried through into White Dwarf, with a number of articles on the subject. In both Onwards and Upwards, and Practice Makes Perfect, Graham Davis, Jim Bramber, and Phil Gallagher took another look at the system, explaining some of the ambiguities in the rulebook and providing more guidance for players and GMs. What's really noticeable when rereading these articles that the emphasis was very much placed on tying the rules back to the setting. Advice was given on role-playing a character advancement within a campaign, noting that it gave games masters ample opportunity to come up with side quests with characters needing to track down an elusive teacher or employer to help them with their desired career change. The articles really helped to ground the concept of careers within the old world setting. They weren't just an abstract title on your character sheet, but they were an essential part of the characters and how they defined themselves within the game. A related article was Paul Coburn's Noblesse, which focused on aristocrats in the Empire. This provided a good deal of interesting background material and generally, and also further emphasis of the noble PC career, which turned out to be not as noble as you might think. It finished with some meaty adventure hooks for noble PCs. Courtly intrigue with a grim dark spin. 
I also enjoyed No Psychos Needed by Chris Felton from issue 92. Just as Phil Gallagher had done for Gnomes, this article looked at role-playing other non-human races in Wolfrup, namely elves, dwarves and halflings. For each race, he explored their social mores and culture and paid particular attention to the race's psychology and their attitudes and interactions with other races. The whole discussion had a very heavy Tolkien influence, so there were no major surprises, but it was an entertaining read. Like Phil Gallagher, Chris Felton couldn't resist the odd groan-inducing pun either. And at least it laid to rest the great question... Do female dwarves have beards? He also made the bold assertion, nobody can dislike a halfling, not for long anyway. Hmm, tell that to Michael Moorcock. Woofruff's momentum seemed unstoppable. In issue 95, 18 months after the former editor and Grognard Fowles' Almanus, Paul Coburn had declared them to be an outmoded concept, I'm glad to see the back of departments, Woofruff um, got its own department. On the boil, the columns covered a grab bag of odds and ends, locations, NPCs, secret societies, magic items, careers again, and so on. Nothing too groundbreaking, but as with the longer articles, the focus was often on providing extra background detail to flesh out the Empire as a setting. There's a certain irony, though, that after Paul Coburn's pronouncement, On the Boil came across very much as a woof-ruff version of Treasure Chest. Around this time, of course, White Dwarf magazine was changing. Warhammer 40,000 was taking over. So, did woof-ruff just vanish from the magazine like Golden Heroes and Judge Dredd had done? Well, not exactly. Now, the old Hammer wiki link in the show notes, podcasters like to say, lists the Woofruff articles out to issue 140. But if you ask me, although the Woofruff articles didn't disappear, they were mutated. Articles was listed as being for both Warhammer Fantasy Battle as well as Woofruff, and sometimes for Warhammer 40,000 as well. But reading them, their applicability to Woofruff was often tenuous. The nature of the threat from chaos had changed. It was no longer within, but without. The subtle, insidious corruption of society was no more. Replaced by slathering hordes and chaos spiky bits, Games Workshop's priorities were clear. They no longer included role-playing games. Even the one that they poured all of their enthusiasm and creativity into two years previously. But don't despair, Woofruff fans. When it came to creativity, White Dwarf writers really pulled out all the stops in the scenarios. And we'll look at those in part two. Judge Baz rules! Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling, where I'm joined by my good friend, Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Now, this time you're in your, your civvies again, aren't you, with your uh, tweed suit and your brogues? I am, yeah. I'm afraid you've been relegated. I've been trying to be relegated since we started this podcast. <laughs> you keep bringing me back on. You're not, you're not a judge for this section. You're merely an no. onlooker. You're in the public gallery. Because we have a strict rule, don't we, in, uh, in the Grognard Files, that we never review a game 
that we haven't played because play's the thing. Yeah. So we've brought in an expert. <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> we've uh, we've got him down from the roof where he's been dancing with Mary Poppins. You might know him from the Smart Party podcast. It's none other than Judge Baz. Hello, Baz. Hello, Dirk. I'll close this court if I have to. I'll make it a closed session, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bl- I understand, uh, Baz, that you, you are a very strict rules-as-written uh, gamer. That's right, isn't it? Well, yeah, mostly it's because I'm tight. If I'm going to spend money on a game book, I feel I might as well use some of the words that are printed in it. So, yeah, you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that, that's music to our ears. It's Man after my own heart. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so you're supremely qualified uh, to do this because when we were, we were doing this, you said, I cannot believe that you've never played uh, Warhammer Fantasy role-playing. Can I help in any way? So th- this is your <laughs> chance. This is your chance. Just just uh, give a bit of background. So when did you start playing uh, uh, Warhammer Fantasy role-playing? When it was released, like all right-thinking, true people of the UK would have done, um, <laughs> which was what, <laughs> 19, 1987, I guess. I mean, you know, I was. it all comes back to White Dwarf, doesn't it? As someone once said, mm-hmm. um, all the previews were there. Uh, it was well trumpeted. It was well announced, and it was on everyone I knew. It was on their Christmas present list for that year, and I think it came out just before Christmas, 1987. And um, and my pristine hardback was was duly delivered by the good graces of Santa Claus, and I think I was playing on Boxing Day with some of my mates. So yeah, from the off, really. And, and what was it about uh, Warhammer that captured your imagination? Like with most games, you don't really know what you're getting into until you get into it. I mean, you know, don't forget there was no such thing as YouTube videos then, or or even much in the way of reviews and stuff. There was basically what White Dwarf told us, and given that it was a game manufactured by Games Workshop. White Dwarf were, you know, they were singing its praises from fairly early on. So um, I, I sort of fell into step with that. Uh, but I think it was probably the cover. And you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I think it's fair to judge Warhammer by its cover. It was a really, really strong, iconic image. And and I think sometimes the very best role-playing games really do genuinely have those really strong, iconic covers, like Traveller did and RuneQuest did um, and, you know, D&D Player's Handbook. But the, the Warhammer one, it kind of set out its stall straight away because there was a dwarf and a party of adventurers fighting stuff, which was pretty standard. But the dwarf had an orange mohawk and um, and he gave that ogre a right old clipping with that hammer. And, you know, the wizard at the back looked kind of weaselly and looked like he'd just, you know, just had a lem sip before he'd gone down the dungeon. He looked like he'd had a, a fairly nasty bout of something contagious. And it just, it, so from that perspective, I thought, oh, this will be good. And because because Games Workshop were behind it, I mean they'd they'd just like lined up my game collection for the previous ten years with solid gold classics. So I thought they're going to put their their experience into this. This is going to be the best game ever made. And I think at the time in 1987, it might well have been. Yeah, and it's a particularly uh, violent cover, isn't it? It's it, like you say, it's got um, punk uh, credentials, but there's you know there's actual blood splattering uh, here, there, yeah. and everywhere. Really gritty stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, gritty is a term that gets bandied around now quite a lot. Gritty didn't really exist then as as a term, like you know, grim and gritty. But but they're right on the cover. 
you've got you know a grim a grim world of perilous adventure that's pretty different to the sort of D&D stylings that were kicking around at the time which was much more sort of um, a bit more sort of like high fancy quite heroic four color stuff I think it was the difference between like being brought up on Avengers comics or being brought up on 2000 AD and this stuff looked just it just looked really British I think it's it's interesting that you say you know that the fact games workshop were behind it uh, sort of gave it a sort of seal of approval because I think our experience of it was very different in that we or I had bought the original Warhammer the very first edition of it which was a kind of strange hybrid between a tabletop battle game and with a bit of a role-playing thing stuck on the back which I remember being very disappointed by it and I think that coloured our view when the role-playing game came out. You know Games Workshop didn't really well, it was trying to serve an awful lot of masters at the same time, and it's it's interesting. It comes at a period in its history where it was kind of moving towards being miniatures only. Um, it was quite late in the day for role play stuff, really, and, and almost from the off, it got treated as as a bit of a, a kind of a side project by the Games Workshop juggernaut that was really starting to pick up steam with like 40k and Space Marines and, and Warhammer Fantasy Battles as well. So, I mean, it was, you know, it was a kind of a difficult birth for it, really. And, and as a punter, you may well have been a little bit confused as to, as to which one was going to be put on life support first. You know, which, <laughs> should, you carry, should you carry on getting those miniatures mm. or should you be getting the dungeon floor plans? It was kind of one or the other. And as much as people might have tried to mix them up a little bit and, and play a bit of fancy role play in their battles or use the battles to supplement role play, it almost kind of like split GW down the middle. It was a bit of a schism product perhaps and we all know which way they went in the end yeah and what uh, and what about you on that boxing day uh baz were you were you playing with miniatures back then or was it uh theater of the mind no i wasn't playing with miniatures i, I have never <laughs> despite working for games workshop for 10 years i have never been into miniatures which is a bizarre <laughs> confession don't, don't tell my old paymasters i didn't put it on i think as blithey said when that early edition and this one as well. I think I always associated it with Mini and the way that it was illustrated was to show the equivalent Mini as, as a character within the game yeah. and I think we made that association. Yeah, I think I think that's true actually. That's a good observation, that that's because I think there was that schism of not knowing sort of thinking that it was it was connected to miniatures. And again we like you, we, we'd left miniatures behind. By 87, we'd left miniatures mm. behind a long time ago. So, again, I think that was a thing in the back of your mind, that this maybe this is a miniatures game or very dependent on miniatures, and for that reason, maybe not really for us. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Now, before we dive into the rules, uh, uh, Baz, you just mentioned your professional interest in uh, Warhammer, because, of course, um, like a previous guest that we uh, I've had on the Grognard Files. You actually worked at the Hammersmith uh, Games Workshop for a period of time, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, I worked for Games Workshop um, after leaving university. You know, you, left, you leave with a law degree, what are you going to do? You're going to go and paint dwarves all day. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Um, so <laughs> rather than reap the rewards of my, my, my fire and further education, um, I ended up working at Games Workshop for quite a long time and... Um, I was in retail and I worked in sales as well. And I worked all over the place around the southeast of England. But, yeah, probably my one of my prouder moments was to be given charge of the Hammersmith store. And I was very, very well aware 
that that was the first Games Workshop store that had ever happened um, when there, there was no such thing as a chain of Games Workshop stores. And and um, and I didn't. I spent a bit of time there. I was there for the 25th anniversary of Games Workshop, which was a really good year because they brought out a load of museum pieces and stuff like that. But the most fascinating thing by far was to go into the cellar of that place and into the back rooms and push through all of the old merchandising to find to find all the sort of scrawled notes on bits of paper and the graffiti on the walls. And it was it really was like stepping back in time and, you know, and finding old signage like, you know, we will buy your painted models um, <laughs> and all of the bits and pieces that never, ever got thrown out. It was like the, the place at the end of Rains of the Lost Ark. <laughs> What's a little bit? Stuffing. <laughs> Big wooden caskets <laughs> yeah yeah you could you could spend time now browsing the internet and lots of people have a have a final time trying to source like the old miniatures and stuff like that you know pre-slotter yes that's um, it when you, had, <laughs> when you had the bases made out of lead and that's the beginning the end wasn't it where they made you glue it into a slot <laughs> well, yeah. that's the turning point isn't it what it may well be your yeah. advancing salamander wouldn't have looked very good in a black hexagonal base, no, would it, really? No, it's all. no but, you know, to, to my shame, and this is a confession here, you know, whenever we did a refurbishment, a lot of that stuff ended up in a skip. It just got shoveled in there and, yeah. and, and just ended up in some landfill somewhere, I guess. But, um, yeah, it was, it was, when you work within it, you know, that, that stuff, it kind of loses its luster as a, as a collectible or something really cool to have. It just becomes part of the environment. And, yeah, stuff was stuff was burned, much oh. to my shame. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, well, anybody who's interested in uh, that aspect should listen to the Smart Party episode, which is the Ten Commandments of Games Workshop, I think <laughs> one of my uh, favourite episodes of the podcast. So let's, uh, let's have a look at these rules. So what are your three highlights that you're going to pick out? What are the three things that you want to talk about? Um, number one on everyone's list who wants to talk about Woofrup, to give it its proper name, is the career system. The career system, so, okay. Sounds yeah. deathly dull, but it's probably the best thing in there. Um, controversially, I wanted to talk about the combat system because I think it's got a lot of strong points in it, sometimes oh. very well hidden, but they're there. And lastly, fate points. Right, okay, that's good. So let's... Uh... Let's start with the careers then. And, and uh, let, before we get into the careers, let me just uh, point out a skill which is very useful for uh, us podcasters, which is a blather. Blather is a skill. Characters with this skill may attempt to blather against characters who speak the same tongue. Blathering can be used in almost any situation in order to gain time. Blatherers simply invent complete string of nonsense, ranting on and on whilst their victims stand dumbfounded, wondering whether they're insane, intoxicated or probably dangerous. So, get blathering about careers. Description, yeah. of, this, description of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it is. Every podcast. <laughs> it is. Let's, let's blather. Blather about careers. So, careers in Warhammer. So... It's straight away, this is the bit that sets it out as a little bit unique. So everybody who picked up Warhammer would have been exposed to role-playing at some point before then. I mean, it's not exactly a starter product. All, all role-play books think they are, but it's not. You've probably played uh, Dungeons & Dragons, maybe Tunnels & Trolls, possibly a bit of RuneQuest. And, and as soon as you open the book, you're seeing familiar things. But when you get to the career section, that's when it all starts to go a little bit, oh, hello, I've got a unique game here. So you, you haven't got... Well, you do have classes. You do have a warrior class and you do have a rogue class and that kind of thing. But that's just a vestigial choice. As soon as you've made that, you're into a career. 
So you have to pick or roll, because back in the 80s you rolled for stuff, you have to pick what your job is. And your job isn't to be an adventurer or a murder hobo or an orc killer. That's not it at all. You actually have to earn a living in pounds, shillings and pence, literally those terms. So that's where the setting started coming out straight away because you could very easily find yourself being, well, classically, a rat catcher uh, <laughs> or a mule skinner or a charcoal burner. And yeah, you might be a road warden and you know have pretensions to be being a highwayman or something like that. But usually you had a pretty... A pretty kind of not even medieval this it was immediately obvious that this was a bit more like yeah the sort of the highwoman era 16th 17th century it was a bit more advanced there was some gunpowder in there but there was plenty of black death as well and pustulence and city careers and 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 it was all a bit grimy and then you would look further and realize that this was just the start you the only reason you were down this dungeon at all was because your normal life was so rotten that you, you, there was no point carrying on with that. And you certainly didn't want to necessarily just join the, the clergy or become a merchant. You would be better off getting hold of your woodsman's axe, gathering together some friends and heading out to like slay beastmen for, for some shillings. So it really sets the tone for the whole game when you, when you realise that instead of a, a paladin, a thief and a fighter being in a dungeon, you've got you know a charcoal burner, a mule skinner and a rat catcher. There's not many parties that are made up that way, and that's that's pretty thrilling straight away. What I find striking about it is the fact that it is so specific, because normally mm. when you get um, classes or careers, they tend to veer towards the generic, don't they? But these are really, really specific. They really are, um, and uh, extremely so. And then as you go on, you, you, you take your career, and as you get better at your career, you essentially want a promotion. So you go move from one career into another. So you would work your way through being a mule skinner to potentially becoming an outlaw, and then maybe an outlaw chief, and then maybe a mercenary captain. So you would, over the course of your adventuring life, instead of going up through levels from 1 to 20, you would just enter new careers. And they got funkier and funkier as they went on. Until, if, you know, you can't start off as like a royal assassin, but you can end up as one. And that was really cool. That was... You, you know, to plan out what you wanted your character to be through the game was really interesting. Instead of thinking about numbers, you thought about activities. And as you read the rules that you write, that is the point where it's borrowed a bit from RuneQuest, it's borrowed a bit from D&D, &D, it's borrowed a bit from this, borrowed a bit from that. And in some ways, the system, perhaps not that original, but the careers give it a flavour where you think, well, actually, you know, I might, I might, I might quite enjoy playing this. There's something a little bit different to it. Yeah, you you can. It kind of makes you bounce off as a min maxer as well, because there are, if you want to do it, it's, there are clearly some careers that are better in inverted commas than other ones for when it comes to like you know making your numbers bigger. But at the end of the day, you just think as you look down the list, I really want to be a grave robber. That sounds great, and or yes. I want one in my party, yeah. or I want to be, yeah. you know, I want to be a prospector a prospector, a grave robber, and a raconteur. It doesn't really matter what your numbers are. You know, when, when people ask you what your character was in, in Warhammer, you would, you would happily tell them your career before you would say your, your race or what weapons you had and certainly magic items and stuff like that. It was all based around your careers. Even though in the game itself, those careers didn't actually make any difference. It was kind of like a background and a class all mixed in together. But it's just very cleverly done. And that's what, and that's that. 
is when you think what 1987 mm. that's sort of what makes it stand out from other games because the other games were very much you know day and day you were a wizard a thief a cleric that kind of thing rune quest you were well wandering around wanting to be a rune lord you know traveler you were well you're probably a space pirate by the end of it because yeah. uh, that's how everyone ends up in traveler but um in this, it does. It's got a, it's got a kind of quirky detail that that invites you, I think, to play a more interesting character. Now, Judge, I have uh, something to put towards you. Uh, I uh, tried rolling a character um, today, but I hit oh. I hit a roadblock because um, with what I rolled, I'm not a very I'm I'm not very lucky when it comes to rolling. Right. Um, I didn't qualify for anything. I didn't qualify to become a warrior, a ranger, a rogue, an academic. And it didn't actually tell me what I could do as an alternative. Just like real life, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's just like your life played out in a rogue play. Because we didn't paint that miniature, then, eh? <laughs> I, I, kept, I kept going down the list. Uh, character must have a WS of at least 30. Well, I had 26. All close, uh, yeah. Yeah. A ca- uh, for a ranger, I needed a BS of 30. My BS was 28. Oh. Uh, um, a rogue, a character must have uh, an I of at least 30. My I was 22. <laughs> Mule Skinner. Yeah, <laughs> and then as an academic, you just, just reeks of mule skin of that character. Ac- academic, right? Must have an int of at least thirty. Well, me int, well, me int was thirty-one. So I'm onto something here. But then me WP had to be thirty, and me WP was twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> so what, Do you know what? The, the interesting thing is that those dice rolls, if you'd managed to get a character out of it, would have been insanely useful during the game. Right. Because people, because once you've got that number, you've got to start rolling underneath it to survive more than 10 minutes. So all right. It'd have been all right. So the, the, careers, the careers are very, uh, very uh, interesting and, uh, and appealing. Um, but let's, uh, let's look at um, this contentious... Uh, area of the rules that you wanted to talk about which is the combat yeah so yeah it's got a combat system because it's 1987 so you've got skills the skills are there and they're percentage based they're not high to begin with um and then there's a chance of your opponent parrying and it's pretty standard stuff after that you know you'll do some damage uh, your strength will matter and your opponent's toughness will matter and and armor will take away some of the hits doesn't make you harder to hit it takes away some of the damage and you've got hit points, uh, and everything's fine until you're down to zero hits. Which, and at that point, you find that Warhammer again throws you a curveball by giving you the world's most evil crit chart. Um, so it's, it's, it's reasonably standard for, for its day. And even now, when you look at uh, modern traditional fantasy role-playing games, they pretty much use the same kind of systems. It is not innovative particularly, but it is, it is often, uh, even amongst Wolfrook fans, um, and the people who didn't play Woodbrook, it's the bit that people got most annoyed with because it's really deadly and it's really hard to succeed. You do spend a lot of the time not getting anything done in combat, uh, apart from like trying to push your arm back on. Um, 
but, but, but you know, that's what made it grim and perilous, right? And this is where I put it to you, uh, Judge Baz. This combat system stands on the shoulders of BRP. Am I right in thinking that you are a BRP and RuneQuest sceptic? Absolutely. <laughs> the thing with BRP is it's basic. And, uh, you know, and we, we've had discussions before, and most people will. You remember when there was a thing called Advanced Dungeons & Dragons and there was a thing called Basic Dungeons & Dragons. Why on earth would I ever want to play basic role-playing? I'm quite good at role-playing, in my opinion. So I'll play the advanced stuff. And it's the same with this. Uh, this, is, this isn't basic. This is, this, is a, this is a game for gentlemen. And it's percentile-based, but then, you know, so, so are quite a few things by this point. It just it's got some nice little gritty bits in the corners which make it a bit more interesting than simply swing and parry. Now the detractors of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay say that, you know, you can spend ages trying to hit someone and then on the, the rare occasion you do, you it'll get parried and there's a whole lot of what they call whiff factor. It's not actually that bad when you play the game. Because there's all kinds of stuff happens. I mean, you know, if you're gonna parry someone, you're giving up your next attack. So you're not actually often going to try for that because then really nothing is going to happen. But when you run out of wounds, you're in a whole new world of things that start to happen. So you don't just drop unconscious at zero hits. You've got hit points in basic role-playing, but in this game, your hit points are a buffer. Up to that stage, you're fine. But you, you are then starting to roll on charts whenever you take any damage at all, which 50% of the time, with the lowest possible level of lethality, you are dead. And it only gets worse from there. In basic, <laughs> worse than being dead. Being dead in Warhammer is a relief sometimes. <laughs> well, well, let Wait, me. Can, can, I, can I ask though? When when you played it, because I yeah. think right, you know, you know, in some games you can do that calculation, can't you? you think, oh yes. well, I'm a tenth level fighter and there or whatever, and I can soak up a bit of damage and I'll be okay. Whereas in Warhammer, it strikes me, even even more than RuneQuest, I would say. A game where you think oh, I don't really want to have a fight because this this could be really really nasty. So what was was it kind of fight light so to speak when you played it? Yeah, which is why the miniatures didn't happen. Yeah, you do avoid combat, and I think and this is the most important thing about Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is not just the main rulebook. That because that like many games does not give anybody a clear indication of what it was like to be a Wolfram player. The game really came into being with its scenarios with its campaigns specifically, stuff like The Enemy Within. That's what Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was really all about. And actually, as you start to play through those campaigns, you find yourself not really referencing the rulebook very much at all. The game rapidly moved away from what looks like a D&D knockoff, um, and it becomes Call of Cthulhu with swords. And at that point, swords aren't helping. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah, combat was a necessary evil sometimes, and you really did roll initiative or enter combat with your heart in your mouth because it was very very difficult to come back from um and it, and it got really brutal really quickly even with the nice little nips and tucks that they've made to the system i think armor's done really well you know leather leather armor is, is kind of a cool thing sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't i think hit locations it's just so easy and i, and I don't think RuneQuest does this where you roll to hit but your hit location is just those two dice reversed that's just clever. Yeah, that is clever. That takes an entire dice roll out of the game. Yeah. And and there's you know there's little bits in there that are easy to gloss over. Like you'll get a, you'll get a ten percent bonus to your skill if you won the last round. So as soon as you start to win, and that's based on like you know how many wounds you dealt out or received. 
it's very easy to know whether you're winning or losing. It's just did you, how did you do last round? You start to get 10% more. So there's like a death spiral built into it from that perspective. So if you're on the losing, if you get ambushed, it's got worse all of a sudden. It's got, you know, it's got a whole set of crit charts, which, as we've said, are pretty brutal. <laughs> but yeah. because it's Warhammer, it's like, if you don't want to bother with that, here's the sudden death chart. So, oh, my word, they've made it even more brutal. <laughs> like, you know, like, crits aren't bad enough when you get your head chopped off. Let's just roll on the sudden death chart, shall we? There's not I, I, many games have got one of those. And the other thing is you can't really kind of, for want of a better phrase, armour your way out of trouble. No. Because, because the armour's just, is it like two points, the maximum you can yeah. get? That's plate ch- chain and plate, yeah. And then le- with leather armor, if, if you get hit for more than is it four or five damage, yeah. you don't, you don't even, it doesn't even work. That's right. They give you armor that doesn't even work. <laughs> worst of all worlds. <laughs> so, before, before we move on to the next one, let me just uh, read this from the uh, crit chart. Your opponent stares in horror as blood pumps from the mangled stump of the wrist. Anything held in the hand is dropped along with the hand itself and your opponent falls unconscious to the ground, losing D4 wounds per round until medical attention is received. Roll yeah, critical. That's all right if it's an opponent, isn't yeah. it? Not if you. But I, it, it, that kind of uh, colour in uh, critical tables um, we used to see in uh, Dragon Quest, but these these are more brutal. I never thought I'd uh, read anything that was more brutal than Dragon Quest. Yes, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very, very nasty. Yeah. <laughs> the lowest levels of criticals. I mean, when when you're out of when you're out of wounds, you know that it's going to be bad news. You might as well toss a coin, and it really is just going to come down to how your death is described, not whether you're going to die or not. The very lowest levels. If you just roll a one for a critical, which is extremely rare anyway, you're still losing an ear. There's yeah. nothing pleasant about it at all. The, the scars are going to start to rack up. So, so let's uh, let's look at uh, your final highlight, and that's uh, that's fate points. So, how do fate points work in this game? <laughs> so, fate points. This is a real innovation. It seems so obvious now, um, and so many games have exactly this kind of thing now. Back in the days of 1987, this was a real revolution. And a really small one as well. It was very subtle. And it was the only nice thing that Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay ever did for its player characters. So if you ever found yourself in a situation where you were completely destroyed, you could cash in your fate point, uh, which is a bit like a get-out-of-jail-free card, which you would hand to your GM. And instead of being eviscerated or torn into pieces by by a beastman, something else would happen instead that would mean that your character was still alive. Now... That happens loads of times in modern games now. You've got your hero points, your bennies, loads of different ways of affecting the narrative. Mm. This was, I think, I, I would stand to be corrected, but I think it was one of the first times it was ever implemented into, into a, a big old proper trad game. But because it's Warhammer, what I really like about fate points is it's not the sort of thing where you can cash in a fate point to just know a contact in the city you're in, like you would find with modern ones. All it does, really, if you use the letter of the law, and let's do that because we're judges, is it turns your instant death into something that's not quite as bad. So (laughs) (laughs) it's not like you're you're bouncing off with your foes all defeated around you like you're some kind of superhero. You would just go from being instantly dead to instead being, I don't know, paralysed from the neck down for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) And that was a perfectly legal thing to do. 
it suggests, you know, instead of being dead, just take a crit instead. Well, half the crits are going to kill you anyway. So I love that it, with one hand it says, don't worry, you're going to be all right. We know this game is quite brutal. But, but the cure is worse than the disease. What doesn't work? What part of the um, rules would you send to the, uh, the dumper? Well, it's a real shame. Um, and it didn't hold us back at the time because we had no other options. But unfortunately for a fantasy role-playing game, the entire magic section is not very good. <laughs> and in some ways, it's almost unplayable. Um, despite that, I remember us playing with it, but the magic section, as presented in Woofrup 1, is not... Well, it's lots of things it's not. It's not very inspirational. It's certainly not very magical. And also, because it's Warhammer, it's an absolute nightmare. The idea of like playing a magic-using class or having a magic-using career... I mean, the, the odds are stacked against you from day one. It's, it's really expensive, both in experience points, money, time, in every possible way. You really have to scrape and claw your way towards being able to set light to something at range. Um, in a world where everyone else has got guns, it does seem a little bit... It's quite hard work. And then... And, and, and I love Warhammer for this. Half the choices you can make as a, as a magic-using class in the game are illegal or will kill you by doing it. So they, they go to the trouble of statting out demonologists and necromancy as, a, as half the, the career choices for your wizards. And you just you can't go down those roads. You cannot go down those roads and survive more than half an hour in the game world because you'll be hunted down by witch hunters or the rest of the party or you'll go mad or a demon will consume you. It is brutally difficult to play a, a wizard in this game. To cast a spell in combat, you are considered to go last. You are also considered to be prone for the whole round, and anything that hits you will automatically crit. Oh, and if you take damage, you lose the spell. Oh, my word. I mean, that, talk about <laughs> difficult. <laughs> yeah, just buy yourself a gun. Yeah, yeah. or a crossbow, or, yeah. you know, pay someone to wander around and set light for things for you. It's really, <laughs> really tricky. And, and, and in a game... Well, the magic system for Warfare 1 was pretty much lifted from the battle system. Um, but, you know, the Warhammer Fantasy battle game has always had big explosions and quite quite evocative magic, really, with the winds of magic. And it's a big part of the Warhammer world. But in Warfare 1, it was almost like they expended an awful lot of words and an awful lot of pages to convince you to not be one. Um, and it was hard. And it begs a question, that, doesn't it, about the game? Because I always think... I'm a big fan of playing wizards, and I always think if you're playing a fantasy game in a fantasy world where there is magic and there is wizards, why would you not want to be a wizard? Correct. There's magic, and you can be a wizard, therefore be a wizard. Yeah. It's the only option. But a game that dissuades you from that or makes it difficult is a bit is a bit problematic for me because I want to be a wizard. Yeah, <laughs> why totally. wouldn't I want to be a wizard? That that well, that said that said as a as a casual reader, so as somebody who's not played it, it it is a, quite a stimulating part of the um, the book. There's little bits of it that you think, oh, they're good ideas. I I, I picked up something about. Is it Dawnstones, uh, which yeah, are like uh, yeah, yeah. runestones that have uh, magic? And again, it's something that um, evokes the world and how magic works differently in the world and it does seem dangerous and forbidding well that's you know in a, in a backwards kind of way it, it was one of the things that made warhammer brilliant because it turns out 
I mean, you can't tell this from one read, but it turns out that all that stuff about playing uh, wizards and stuff is absolutely correct, but it's just for the baddies. It's for the NPCs. So yeah. really, it's another piece of the monster manual. Because the Warhammer world, magic is basically illegal. Um, there are witch hunters. You are consorting with demons. All the stuff that kind of gets hand-waved away in your D&D games about wandering wizards not being trusted by villagers. Yeah. In this game, the villagers will rise up with pitchforks and they will come after you. You have to be sanctioned in the Empire to cast any kind of spells at all. There's some bits and pieces about druids and clerics and stuff like that. But actually, magic is made of chaos. It's to be feared. And it really drives most of the scenarios are about people pursuing power. Um, and it's a very human game, despite, you know, ostensibly looking like you could be dwarves and elves and halflings and go around having jolly adventures in shining metal armor. It's not like that at all. It's not obvious from that core book they weren't called core books then but you can see how it begins in there it rapidly becomes call of cthulhu or post-apocalyptic as soon as you start playing so you don't really want to be a wizard because the rest of the party will hunt you down or hand you in and they'll be forced to or your family will be tortured and the village be burned and that's a, a campaign ender in anyone's book <laughs> well, you, well you say that but you know, I, I still want to be a wizard <laughs> I, and and you, you raise a good point there, uh, Baz, because uh, one of the things I've always had against uh, the Warhammer books when I looked back at it back in the day is particularly given that this was, I believe, to be uh, a game that was selling miniatures, the actual bestiary is fairly thin and the world doesn't have many of its own unique monsters at this stage i mean sure. there's a there's a scaven isn't there and um i think there's a killer puffin um somewhere <laughs> in it um, well, that's, that's just you've just beaten giant badger there <laughs> killer puffin <laughs> but in, in general in, in general the the bestiary is fairly fairly mundane for something that's got so much color in the rest of the uh, rest of the book yeah I think that that is a fair criticism, but again, you know, as the line develops, you see stuff happen. You see stuff, you see seed sown in that book in 1987 that only came to fruition in the last couple of years in, in, in our world, like, you know, 2014, 2015. So take this. You've got Lord of the Rings, D&D. You've got all of the, you've got Michael Moorcock. There's, you know, stuff about law and chaos in this game. You've got the big touchstones from fiction. And it's just pushed together, as, as Blythe said before, it takes from other games, it takes from other mythologies. It's not that innovative as a game. And that meant that for decades, Games Workshop was hobbled with nicked intellectual property. It's got orcs and goblins. Skaven is its own thing. That's lovely. But almost everything else in there, from the elves to the dwarves to the halflings to you know, stuff like that, it's, it's not not that innovative so they had to make the world innovative and it was only a few years ago that they blew up the warhammer world because they realized they just couldn't leverage this stuff because you can't you can't say that a hobgoblin or, or even their versions of orcs and goblins which they painted green and made them a bit comedic it's just not enough they can't own orcs so they hobbled themselves you know decades ago by making a really generic fantasy rule set that was pulled from the stuff that was current at the time and and then spent the next couple of decades just trying to get away from it and make it make it more exciting because you know Warhammer orcs, Warhammer goblins, love them or hate them, are definitely 
Warhammer orcs and Warhammer goblins, but they weren't in 1987. They were just, they were the same as D&D orcs for ages in Britain. I don't think many British gamers knew that orcs weren't green mm. until they read Lord of the Rings. And they didn't realize that goblins weren't, you know, comedy value because a D&D goblin is very different. And it still takes me by surprise now. I kind of want them to be on pogo sticks and and uh, <laughs> chariots of, of, of blades and just being ridiculous and bouncing around on space hoppers. Um, and that's that's what became of some of this stuff because they had to pump it up. And then what they did with the scenarios was they decided that actually the monsters come from humanity. So that's where you get the stuff about chaos, about witch hunters, about mutations about grabs for power it all becomes about your the humanity and what people will do for power so squirreled away in that history are a, a few demons but they're tossed in there in the same way that zombies are and wivens and giant badgers they don't seem to be anything out there but of course demons and warhammer and the four chaos gods became everything and it, it blossomed from there. They, they took those little bits and made, made, well, made an industry out of them, actually, in fairness. But it's not there at the start. It's just the way the game became, because it had to, I think. And obviously, um, we've been talking about the first edition, and there have been subsequent editions, and uh, a new edition has just been released by Cubicle 7. So mm-hmm. uh, did you stick with it, and are you excited about the new edition? I always like new editions. I, I, because you know my old ones are still there, um, and I, I tend to tend. It's not always true, but I tend to think new editions usually bring something new to the party and are in some ways better. Um, so yeah, I, I, I followed all the editions through, um, and you know in my time working at Workshop, we weren't doing much role-playing games then. But of course, the setting, the old world, which is the best bit about Warhammer, that was constantly being. It was never refreshed. The old world didn't move. For decades but it was always being refined and detailed a little bit more nothing ever moved forward you know and, until fairly recently when chaos invasion started they set the world in motion and i am excited about fourth edition because it seems to be you know learning all the lessons of the past taking the greatest hits kind of approach to previous editions the fan support for warhammer has been immense you know we all love fanzines and the warhammer fanzines were up there with the cthulhu fanzines for their professionalism things like warpstone were a real well they, they kept it going for a very long time when gw weren't interested so again it, it shares something in common with your rune quest and your chaosium stuff but yeah i'm genuinely really excited about the new the new bits that are coming um my co-host over at the smart party is going to be running some some Woodfoot four while i've been researching Woodfoot one he's been looking at the new stuff and and he's excited about it so yeah, I think we're going to be back in the old world before you know it. I, I love listening to the Smart Party. I've appeared on the Smart Party, um, but I do. I always find it an inspirational listen, and I always end up doing something differently after listening. So, do you want to, in case there are any of our listeners who haven't listened to your podcast, just give it um, a pitch why they should stop listening now to the Grognard Files and start listening to the Smart Party? So, uh, what would the Smart Party do? It's a pretty long-running podcast now, uh, but it's much, much longer running than that. We just never used to record it. Uh, me and my old friend from university, Gaz, uh, who I've been gaming with for, well, nigh on 30 years now, um, we just used to stay up late after games and uh, open a bottle of whiskey and talk about them and put the gaming world to rights. 
And with modern technology, we've just carried on doing that and we haven't found a reason to stop yet. So we just talk about stuff that we see around us in the hobby and occasionally we'll get interviews on there and we'll get special guests. And we've been very lucky so far that people have said yes to our requests. Yeah, so we have a lot of fun doing it. And we love it when people say they've listened. Thank you very much, Baz. Uh, and uh, I'm going to go away and uh, see if I can roll myself a better character. It won't be hard. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. See you later. Yes. Thanks. Bye. Thanks to Baz for helping us discover the delights of Woof Ruff. Be sure to check out the Smart Party podcast if you haven't already. We've got some more games planned. Some we might actually record the actual real play. I wonder why the phrase actual play became a thing. Hmm. Thanks to to Graham. I've included a link to his blog in the show notes where you'll find a comprehensive back catalogue so you can explore some of the projects he's been involved in. Next time he talks about his role in Vampire the Masquerade, GURPS and other gaming goodness. Please send me your thoughts on Woofruff to dirkthedice at gmail.com or leave a comment on the grognardfiles.com or get in touch with me on my social media of choice Twitter where I'm at the Grognard file I'll be interested to hearing your memories of playing the game back in the day thanks to all the patrons who chuck a tip in the beret as a thank you for the podcast to help support the running cost and to fund other projects the third grogzine is being developed contributions are coming in thick and fast Russ Nicholson is working on the cover and it will include an epic scenario, Steel Hearts and Straight Razors for Warhammer by Roger Coe. It's great stuff with maps and everything. If you want a hard copy, due to be posted anywhere in the world in early 2019, then you'll need to be signed up as a Patreon at the 31st of November, as I'll take the numbers from that point. The PDF will be available this zine is meant to be a physical thing that you have in your hands to hold. Thanks to all the new patrons who joined this month, I'll give you a personal shout-out next time, including a critical woof-rup hit to those pledging $5 or more. I've really enjoyed discovering the old world. I hope you have too. Until next time, adios, amigos.